Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and joining me on today's episode is Jeff Buckley's manager himself, Dave Laurie. I'm so honoured to actually announce this and have him on the show. It still doesn't seem real at this moment in time because if anyone knows me or knows my love of music will know that Jeff Buckley is my favourite artist of all time. I believe he's one of the best vocalists, the best songwriters, the best guitarists and all-round frontmen I've ever seen. I really think that a week will never go by that I don't listen to his music. So to know that I've had the closest person to Jeff come on this podcast is a dream come true. Now Dave Laurie has never spoken about his time with Jeff. He's never talked about his experience with him, his stories until now. Now in 1997 we lost Jeff Buckley and it still is raw now 20 years later and obviously a lot more raw for Dave. So to know that he's taken time out to come on this podcast means the world to me. We have a lot of fun on Mark and me and we you know it's a it's a lot of fun interviews and very positive and even though the subject here is quite down and quite sorrow I believe that this podcast is a celebration of Jeff's life but I do warn you If you are a fan of Jeff Buckley, it gets emotional and sometimes it's going to be hard to listen to. But I hope you all enjoy it and I hope you get something from this episode. Right, so I just want to touch base a little bit on the last episode. So I was joined by Jamie Lemon. This has been one of my most successful episodes and I keep saying this week after week, but that can't be a bad thing. I was lucky enough to go and sit with Jamie in his own home and record an interview and the feedback has been phenomenal. I've been able to forward it all on to Jamie himself and he's been loving all the feedback on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email. So please keep it coming and it really did mean the world for all of you to listen and take the time to give the feedback. But let's get back on to today's episode. This interview is raw. I didn't want to edit much out of this interview. I didn't want to polish it because it's all about the conversation between me and Dave. So... Let's get to this interview now. I don't want to delay it anymore. Here's my interview with me and Jeff Buckley's manager, Dave Laurie. Okay, so Dave, thanks for joining me today. My first question is about your actual career. So what was it that made you want to get into the management of bands and having that kind of lifestyle? Well, the bands I was, I was a musician first and foremost, and all the bands I was in, I was doing all the management duties. And then it's probably about 24, I didn't go to college right away, and in a band that was uh, taken off uh, up and down the East Coast in America. And uh, it got to a point I had to make a decision, either be the player or be the manager, because both were so encompassing. So I decided to move to New York University and study music business because I was enjoying the management end of it more. And uh, I got Scott Travis, who's still with Judas Priest, to replace me. That's uh, not too bad shoes that you've been filled for you. It's not. It's quite a nice name to hear. Well, he's a he's a great drummer. We were both uh, living in Virginia Beach at the time. So then, when you did decide to become a manager and kind of you know put down your musical instruments and just take that lifestyle, how did you adjust? Were you enjoying it, or were you kind of finding your feet? Well, the first artist I managed was Pete Seeger, who was a legendary folk artist. His nephew Nick. We had a couple country singers singles on the charts, independent charts here in America, and then I started tour managing bands. As a manager, I learned really early on that you really manage the areas around the artist. I worked uh, sales, retail, in college to pay the rent. I was a tour manager. I was already a musician. Then one of my internships was being a publicist for Prince on his Purple Rain tour, among others, and so... It all just kind of come together uh, when I was managing the Allman Brothers in 89, or tour managing the Allman Brothers, bringing them back after 10 years with Danny Goldberg. And after 89, Greg's contract was up with his former manager, and he asked me to manage him, and that's how it all began. So now you've obviously just got your book coming out on the life of Jeff Buckley and your, your friendship and your love for each other. Now... Can you remember the very first time that you met him? I believe, was it 1994, after he'd done his first tour? No, it was actually um, October 93. I had just finished uh, the New Music Seminar, which at the time was the largest music conference in the world. 10,000 delegates. 
Um, it was based in New York. We actually started South by Southwest in uh, the late 80s, mid to late 80s. I was just fried because I booked 35 venues a night over the course of a week, you know, four or five bands in each. Uh, it was the glory days of the music business where punk and hip-hop and grunge and everything was starting to meld together. So I had gotten done with the festival in July. I was still fried. It was a Sunday, and he was 45 minutes late. Not a good start. Um, no, I have a pet peeve about lateness, which probably isn't good being a manager, but maybe it is good. Um, but essentially, I threw my bio down at him and said, here's who I worked with. I got a pet peeve of lateness. And I walked out the door. He followed me out and said, you're the first guy that hasn't kissed my you-know-what. And I told him I hadn't seen him play or sing or heard a tape or anything. He didn't even have a demo tape at the time, but he was signed. Live at Sinead was just coming out. Uh, he was still recording Grace. And I said, if I were you, I'd be worried that the industry will, there's so much hype on him that I thought, I told him, I said, there's so much hype on you that I'd be concerned that the industry is going to chew you up and spit you out. And he said, can you come in? I'd like to talk about that. I could see his concerns in his eyes. And uh, so I went back in and we started talking about all kinds of music. I mean, he loved metal bands. He loved Pakistani singers. He liked, you know, uh, Nina Simone. It was all over the place. And I went, wow, I got to listen to this guy's music, I guess, because I, I didn't know much about Tim Buckley, his dad, but I thought he was some kind of folk artist playing these, uh, you know, clubs in the village with a guitar. So how did he kind of win you over? Because that's not the best start at all. And obviously being late and having that kind of attitude on your very first meeting, you must have been a bit like, I'm not too sure about this guy. Well, a lot of it had to do with, he had a manager already uh, who was an attorney. And uh, Columbia had said, you know, he had no experience. So I probably was mad at him. I mean, that probably overly mad at him as a result of that because I didn't want to do all the work and get half the money. I knew he was a star, though, when he walked in. I had somebody years ago, not too long ago, I taught at uh, a college here near New York, a grad program from uh, music business, and one of the students asked me, what determines when you sign an act? And I'd never been asked that before, and I said, I thought about the acts that I signed, I said, it has to do with how they walk in. It's the it factor. You know, it's like the windows open up and the wind comes blowing in. And, you know, it's, I assume they can play their instrument and sing. But uh, it's all about that it factor. And do you believe that literally the first time you even met him, even though he was late, he had it instantly? He was just a star in the making? I knew when he walked in the door, yeah. That's amazing. Without even hearing a note. So you just discussed his music taste and all the different genres he liked. At what point was it and what was the first song you heard of his to actually determine, OK, this is Jeff Buckley's music? Well, I didn't hear him. Any, I didn't hear him sing. I actually, he called me uh, the beginning of December and said, "I want you to manage me." I still hadn't heard any music. I hadn't heard him sing, play guitar, or anything. I knew there was a huge buzz on him, and I heard from too many people that I trusted their instincts and said this guy was a star. So I said, "You know what? I'll take a flyer on it." It wasn't until early mid January. I went out with him, his guitar, and a car, and started in Vancouver, Canada, going down the West Coast for the next 10 days with him. And that's when I first heard him. Um, it was kind of a train wreck at the beginning, to be honest with you. He was talking between songs. People were yelling out, play Tim Buckley songs. He would get mad at him. And it was about the third show. And I said to him, look, you can't let your dad get the better of you. If you want to prove you're different, get up there, command the stage. And I put in an Allman Brothers tape and we were listening. Dickie Betts was playing this blazing solo. And I said, when Dickie Betts or Keith Richards gets up on the stage, it's like a gunslinger putting on a holster. It's an American thing. Um, and I said, it's all about attitude and I can't teach that to you. Now, the next show, he did put together a proper set list. He thought about it. He ended with Hallelujah. The place went nuts. And that was the beginning of it that I knew he was probably going to make it. Um, but it wasn't until we went to London that I knew he was going to make it. And in the book, I explained the GLR session he did. And 
what happened was, well, first off, he kicked in the, the dash of the president of Big Cat Records, uh, Atlas Carr, because the presenter kept saying, Tim Buckley's son, Tim Buckley's son. Didn't mention Jeff once. And after he performed, the uh, producer said, I've been here 12 years and I've never seen anything like this. All the phones just lit up. And then the next night we were playing this bungees in London, only held about 40 people, but that's what he was playing to, you know, 40, 50, 100 people on this whole tour. And I walked outside, there was a line four or five blocks long. And I went to the agent downstairs, I said, we got to book some more shows. And she walked down the street booking more shows, and it was like the Pied Piper, Jeff carrying his amp and guitar, and there's a line of people for blocks following him down the street. And that's when I knew he was going to make it. You just mentioned then about that time that you were with him on his, um, I think it was just the two of you in your car, and I read about this in the book. I mean, is that when you kind of feel that he opened up to you the most? Because... You can hear in his lyrics that he has a lot of trust issues. You know that there's a lot of pain inside. And Did you give him advice? We could relate to each other because I moved around a lot myself. In fact, right before my last year of high school here in America, I moved from the middle of America to the East Coast. So virtually I lost every friend I had. You know, as, as I said in the book, I sat him down pretty much soon, early in the, in the tour. I said, you got to trust somebody. If you're not going to trust me, then I'll leave. Because you have to have somebody you trust to deal with everything that surrounds you, personally and professionally. And I knew Jeff didn't trust anybody, but we built it up, you know, over that two-week period. I was really surprised how little um, Jeff Buckley did any drugs or drank. And um, you made a point quite early in the book of trying to get that across. I think a lot of people thought that maybe he was a big drug user in his life and times. Well, you know... It's because of his dad. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I had Jim Irvin write the book with me was when he was in Dublin with me uh, when I had an artist, Cattell Kennick, starting her tour on Electra, who's just friend I was also managing, when I got the call. And I called Jim the next morning, but I didn't want any rumors about Tim and Jeff die the same. And I said to Jim, I said, whatever the truth is, I'll tell you, but don't print anything. And he didn't print anything, you know. He uh, gave up some profits, and then we, we finally did a story together. Probably about 10 days later, two weeks later, called Jeff Buckley the truth. And like I said, I wanted to put a stamp on his legacy, uh, show people what a great guitarist he was, what a great vocalist, what a great person he was, how respectful he was a person, how humble he was. But yet how his talents were just unbelievable. But also, you know, the other books that were written, they weren't written by somebody that knew him. They didn't interview people. Well, they interviewed people that knew him, but it was during the time he was never home. He was on tour for like two and a half, three years. So how would they know what he was going through? And the people in the book that are with me, a couple of them have spoke before, but they didn't speak at this line. But the rest of them hadn't spoke about Jeff. And all through the years, uh, I would get calls or they would get calls, somebody wanting to talk about Jeff, and we all said no. And they would call me and say, are you doing it? And I said no, and they said, I'm not going to do it. And it was really difficult to contact them this time because I said, I'm going to do the book. CAA called me, Rob Light, the head of it, and said, I want to read the book. And it's because it's kind of like saying your father died in a horrific crash, let's relive it. And, you know, that's not a good thing. It's it's, it's tough, and um, I'm very grateful that you released the book because I've read a lot of awful books on his life that are not commissioned in any way, and like you said, they weren't there firsthand to experience this stuff, and it just seemed like a cash-in for a lot of people. Well, the estate's not commissioning this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but... It was funny, when C.A. called me, I said, who would want to read a book by me? And the other Buckley books didn't sell hardly anything. So it was hard getting the deal at the beginning, and we found a publisher that was passionate about it. In fact, the guy, it's a new company, but he worked at Simon & Schuster for decades. He said, be honest. He said, if you're honest in the book, um, people will buy it. Because a lot of artists are not honest about, you know, they do puff pieces on their life, except for Keith Richards, which is a phenomenal book. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But, you know, so I tried to be honest in there, warts and all. I also wanted to show, uh, it seems like I've gotten across the peek behind the curtain between the artist-manager relationship and what goes on, the good, the bad, the ugly. And also, that was a very unique time in music. You know, Jeff came out with an album when grunge was what was happening. We took it to college radio, and they were like, what is this with Live at Cheney? But I explained to him at the time that if you are original and you get through, you'll last forever. I want to kind of highlight some of the really positive bits of the book that really kind of made me chuckle and smile a lot. So for the listeners out there that haven't read the book, there's a story about when he was in Amsterdam and he made himself literally sick. (laughs) And that, that pot story is absolutely fantastic. And I think people need to remember Jeff, not for the the guy that walked to the, the waters, I think, to, to hear how he was, and I hope you can share a bit more light on this, how he was in Amsterdam, because he wasn't a big drug user, but the hash story just, you know, tell me more, because it's, it's, you were there with him. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like when, people, when you live in New York or London, you don't really sightsee that much, but if a friend comes in, you take them all around the city and do things you've never done before. Yeah. That's kind of how it was. Jeff had never been to Amsterdam. And, you know, for somebody in America um, and the prudish behavior of Americans, you know, to see a red light district like that or walk into, you know, the coffee shop and be able to smoke hash freely and, you know, just it's a beautiful city also. So, yeah, we were tickling the underbelly a little bit. And, uh, you know, I thought he was very sick like you know deadly sick and uh you know the doctor gave me a royal chewing out <laughs> i was like we were only 11 days into the european tour <laughs> but you know he said you're beating your artist to death and, and jeff just kept apologizing i think that was another step in the trust factor that trip you know i could have very easily you know gone off on him but he, he told me something very you know, it's not something you would just blurt out to anybody of what was going on. And he came to me and apologized and said, you know, this is what I did. That's like one of the many steps of building his trust. So I believe that he ate a lot of hash, made himself very, very sick. And even when you got back, did he keep some hash in his shoe? Well, <laughs> what happened was, so I let him rest for a couple of days. We had to cancel the last tour day, which was Paris, which ironically turns out to be one of his biggest markets, right? Uh, down the road, and we arrived at JFK Airport in New York, and yeah, he pulled off his shoe, and there it fell under the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I mean, the one thing you don't do is come from Amsterdam and have anything on you with customs. I mean, it's like a raging check this guy or girl out because they're probably carrying drugs. You were kind of like a father figure to him, and obviously, once you'd earned the trust of each other, you were always looking out for him. And because he's so handsome and he's such a star, he must have been a liability because he was a ladies' man. I mean, I read a bit about you mentioning his time with, was it Rough Trade Records, when he was kissing one of the managers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Because everywhere he went, he must have had women throwing himself at him. You must have just been like, how do I control this? Because he loved it. You could see him smiling away on the footage and having the time of his life well i try not to get involved in my artist's personal uh, life because be it you know parents or uh girlfriends or wives or whatever because you really can't win uh my wife was his promotion manager yeah and based in london and i think she said it best and so did leah reed in the book leah said that you know he could be with you 10 seconds and you would feel like his best friend. And the problem is he got more famous, more people wanted more time out of him and he just couldn't give it. And then my wife said, you know, it didn't matter if it was a label person, uh, you know, a press person, a fan, whatever the case may be, they'd just be besotted with him. And they would just, you know, it was crazy watching the women in the front row. I mean, with the rough trade incident, that happened after like the third or fourth show together. And I was so angry with him. And then what happens? I turn around and, you know, get my wife pregnant who's working <laughs> at Sony. <laughs> yeah. It's the, uh, 
it's the equivalent. He says it in the book. He says, haven't you ever done that before? And I was like, yeah, I have. But, you know, you got to be careful because I didn't have the drop-dead gorgeous looks or the, uh, you know, break of the hearts. But, you know, that's part of the honesty that I wanted to bring out in the book, both, you know, him and I and our flaws. Or, you know, I think that's what really is a big sell. I just finished, like, 15 radio interviews the other day for Clear Channel, iHeartRadio, across America. And the common theme with all the DJs was, your book is very honest, and I feel like I'm right there with you. Like, I feel like I'm hanging out with Dave. And you can't get a better compliment than that. Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate, isn't it? It's the biggest pat on the back you can get. Well, that's due to Jim Irvin. I mean, when I was writing the book, I'd you know, write a bit, and he would send me back 30 pages, single space, what color was your shirt, what kind of car were you driving, you know, just what was the wallpaper like in the hotel. I was like, when he first started doing it, I was like, really? But that's where you get all the flavor. And everybody, the other common thread is the visuals. They can visually see what's going on. And, and you know, I gave the meat. He gave the decoration to make it sing. And it worked perfectly. It was a beautiful combo. Thank you. I think so, too. I mean, not just because I wrote it, but uh, Jim was uh, just brilliant. We're talking about Jeff's looks and stuff and his kind of, you didn't get involved in his love life and stuff. Do you think he was a man that was in need of love or scared of love? Because I could never work it out through his music. Well, it's it's weird. I mean, you know, artists that... Um, are the best generally have the most pain or the most confusion or whatever you want to call it. Um, he wanted to be loved, but he also did push love away. Um, I saw a couple times and he told me that I used to do the same thing. I think it comes from the fact that Jeff and I both moved around a lot. So you didn't want to get attached to something because it was so painful when you left. If that makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that's where we bonded originally. On about the second city, I think it was, we were flying to Seattle. And we started talking, and we both had mothers who were, you know, uh, played music, and we both moved around a lot and have a lot of childhood friends. And I think that comes out in the pain in his music. I think that uh, it was something he did wrestle with. One of the things as well that your book kind of painted a picture in my head was that I didn't think he really wanted the fame in the way of, you know, when he won the, was it voted the top 50 most beautiful men in the world? And his initial reaction was just to get drunk. And he, he didn't want to be the main focus of music videos and stuff. And considering it's Jeff Buckley is his name, his artist band is Jeff Buckley. He's on the front cover. I couldn't get that kind of feel of, did he want to be famous or was it later on in life that he then established himself. No, he wanted to sell records, Matt. He just didn't want to be, you know, he didn't want the other part of it. What's interesting, if you look back in the, the bands that are uh, making the most money, most of them today, like touring, you know, it's those bands from the 70s and 80s, you know, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Allman Brothers, these type of bands never wanted to be rock stars. They had to play rock music because it was like air. If they didn't do it, they'd die. And when I was a musician, it was the same way. Today's artists are all about, even back when, in Jeff's day, not as many as today, but most of them want to be rock stars. They don't really care about the, you know, the musicianship. Jeff was all about the musicianship, the, the songwriting. He was more of a composer than a songwriter. He wasn't someone to sit down and write out a three-chord love song. You know, it's three minutes long. He would want to know how the the guitar was going to sound or the drums were going to sound, how we were going to layer it, you know, things like that. We always thought he'd come out with Sergeant Pepper and not at the opera one day. Because um, Grace is that way. He, he, did a lot, he did a lot of the strings, uh, wrote the string parts for the, that well, record. Wow. We, yeah. Um, I wasn't involved in that record, you know, until at the end. But Steve Berkowitz, his A&R guy, said, you know, where did you learn to do that stuff? <laughs> yeah. I think it all came, a lot of it came from Guitar Institute, where he attended, but very few people knew in L.A. The story kind of towards the end of the life of Jeff, you, you mentioned in the book, and I found it quite fascinating, is he had quite a lot of erratic behavior towards the end. You know, he, he was looking at buying a brand new house. He was even looking at trying, uh, kind of looking, was it a job at a butterfly zoo? Uh, yeah. 
did you start to notice this change as well when you know he was recording the My Sweetheart the Drunk follow up to Grace? Did you start to see this change in him or? Well, I think if you read what Chris Dowd, his best friend, and says in a book, um, he was the lead singer of Fishbone. He said, you know, he talks about when you're creating, you're like, does it make you kill yourself? No, but does it make you crazy? Absolutely. And because you're being pulled in all these different directions, and I think he was trying to settle down. And I mean, looking back at it now, wanting to settle down and create a life outside of this world when, you know, life he was in. Because in New York, people would know where he's hanging out. He couldn't be alone. Is he was always about being credible. The artists that in the village wouldn't let him into their, you know, little cult because he was signed to a major label. Um, he said that bothered him, and, and I used to tell him, I say, look, you know, they're working at Kmart or they're working at, you know, the local drugstore. I said, you know, um, pop means popular. Bob Dylan's popular. Bruce Springsteen's popular. There's nothing wrong with being popular. And I think he finally, the last thing he said to me, one of the last things, he came and saw me two weeks before he uh, died, and last night he was in New York. He said he was finally ready to be popular. And that's what makes it even more sad, because what he would have done to those demos of My Sweetheart the Drunk. It would have been... I always think, it's one of those things where I always think to myself, what would Kurt Cobain be doing now? What would Jeff Buckley be doing now? And if he was ready for it and wanted the the pop, you know, it's 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 like the songs, you know, everyone wants you here. You just think they would have been absolutely massive. I think so. And I think with Andy Wallace at the helm again, it wouldn't have been Grace 2, it would have been different. But it would have been phenomenal because of what they did with Grace. Um, I could see him doing a big band thing down the line. He told me he wanted to do a Pakistani record. He wanted to do an unplugged record with strings. Um, I mean, he, he was all over the place. Uh, There's no telling what he might have done. In fact, the reason for the, we call the Judy Garland jacket on the front of Grace was to do two things. One was to show him as an entertainer so it didn't lock him in musically. Uh, you don't know who it is. It could be Harry Connick. It could be, you know, whoever on that uh, by looking at the cover. And the other reason was it took him as far away from his father as possible. I've never really looked at it like that. I knew, obviously, with all the sequins and stuff, you don't really... It doesn't sound like the guys on the record. But, yeah, I suppose getting that divide between him and his father, that legacy that was there... That's probably the best way to go about it. I I find it difficult to talk about the loss of Jeff Buckley, and I'm sure for you it's more raw than anyone. But I mean, can you remember the last time you saw him? I mean, uh, I mentioned yeah, he, came, he came to my house. I mean, I write about it in the book. Um, I did something very unique on a new artist back in that day, and my wife used to hate it, but I used to get a release sign for use both promotionally and commercially, being to go later or a photographer in the pit at a show taking photos to radio shows, to TV shows, whatever it was. And we got masters sent to us, plus we recorded um, high-level recordings on every single show he performed. So he would—he brought me up all the, the music the night before because he was subletting his apartment. And he said to me, you know, in regards to the popular thing, but he also said... I'm going to leave this with you, I only trust you, and don't let Sony ever get this music. Um, sounded kind of weird, but I understood why he brought the music up, because he didn't want it being, you know, somebody hanging around making copies. Um, but he just played with my daughter and my wife. I mean, he adored my wife. You know, she had the perfect job, you know. She was there to protect the artist doing media all the time. So uh, th- those type positions generally are very close to the artist. And, you know, because I met my wife, I wouldn't have met my wife without managing Jeff. I wouldn't have had my two daughters without managing Jeff. So I look at my daughters and my wife every day and think of Jeff. So if you think it's hard talking about his death, how would you like to be thinking about it every day? (laughs) In both a positive and a negative way. Do you remember what it was like when you found out he went missing? I mean, did you get a phone call? Was it a case of the moment you were told he was missing, you you thought the worst, or did you have some hope that maybe he was going to be found? 
Well, I got called around 6 in the morning in Ireland. I was in Dublin. And it was from the tour manager. I could hear the motors in the background, which turned out later to be helicopters searching the river. And they told me, you know, he'd gone missing. And I said, what do you mean he went missing? Jeff would always go missing. <laughs> it was like, okay, I'd worked it out 1 o'clock in the morning. He's probably just hanging out somewhere else, show up at rehearsals, because they just started rehearsals. They were supposed to start rehearsals that night for the next two weeks, and then Andy Walsh was coming down, they were going to do the record. But when I heard he was missing, I dropped the phone. And I was talking to somebody the other day about this. Um, you know, that's a very quiet time in the morning, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And in the book, I think Jim does a good job of what I was feeling, you know, I hear the uh, mini bar go on. Well, how many times are you in a hotel and actually hear a mini bar go on? It's because it's dead quiet. And I'm sitting there, I pick the phone back up, and I said, I'm going to go, did he go? And I actually say, he's not coming out, is he? And at that point, it just became a military operation. I didn't know what to do at first. You know, there's not a book written that says, this is what you do when your rock star dies. And, but I was worried about the Tim Jeff comparison, so I got a hold of the publicist right away. Um, and you start, it's like a military operation. Uh, you're really going on instinct at that time. And I had some good help from Danny Goldberg and Jack Billing. Danny and I co-managed the Allman Brothers together, and he was managing, him and Janet were managing Kurt Cobain when he shot himself. So Danny called me, and he said, you're part of a club you don't want to belong to. And Janet who did day-to-day for Kurt and Nirvana, you know, told me things that you have to do to protect your artists, you know, DNA tests, things like that. A lot of stuff you don't even want to know about, but, um, you know, it's a pretty awful thing, and then you're keeping everybody up. My wife, my artists who liked it, loved each other, uh, Columbia employees, uh, Sony Music Publishing employees, promoters, agents, you know, you're just, like, keeping everybody up that I found out when I started writing this book that I just put everything in boxes and taped it shut and just numbed it out. When they found the body, um, it was found upstream, which if anyone's going to actually go upstream, of course it's going to be Jeff. You know, it's... it's, 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 <laughs> it's I thought that was classic, especially on Beale Street where all the blues clubs were. <laughs> it's... It's it's so weird to laugh when you're talking about such a tragic thing, but it, it just brings a smile to my face. He went to the place where all the legends were, and I just think, who who else would do that? But there was no foul play. It was a horrible... No, act. he just took it one step too far. And, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, what did Leah Reed say in the book? His product manager. It seemed like a good idea until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. That kind of sums it up best. There was there was a voicemail he left, wasn't there, before he died to you? Well, it wasn't to me because I was in Dublin. Yeah. Um, like I said, he adored my wife, and uh, because she was very protective of him for three years, you know, touring Europe and the UK and Ireland, and uh, so yeah, he I timed it out. It was I was figuring it was about fifteen minutes before he drowned or left the house, I should say. And, yeah, he said, uh, hey, Sam and Charlotte, Jeff here, just wanted to check in and tell you I love you, play the music, play it loud, love Jeff. Click. And I didn't hear it until four days after he disappeared, when I came back to New York. And is that something he would do often, or is that a bit out of character for him just to leave a message like that? No. It really isn't. Um, what was uncharacteristic of him was two days before he disappeared, I put a call into him and he never called me back. That was uncharacteristic of him. And obviously, many years passed. What, when was the first time you could listen to his music after his passing? Because I, I, I struggle. I don't know how you'd even... Was there a day that you just felt you wanted to celebrate his life? Or was there a day that you heard it on the radio without knowing? Or how how did you find yourself going back and listening to his his work? I only really listened to his music at all for like six years. Um, 
to this day, I don't really listen to Grace. I don't listen to the other albums. The only thing I listen to, um, which I pulled out recently uh, while doing the book and put the CD in my car, was the his last two tours were of Australia. And on the first tour in September '95, he recorded a multi-track recording for Live at the Wireless for Triple J Radio in Australia. And the band was just like a freight train out of control at this point. They were so good and so tight. And he stayed behind after the Australian tour end of September and mixed it, mastered it, you know, did the whole nine yards to it, put a stamp on it, and he gave it to me. And he said, this I'm releasing as a live record. And it actually was the one after he drowned and died I, I wanted to release. But, of course, I was beat up and fired shortly thereafter. But I have that in my car. And... The reason it's in my car and the only thing I listen to is because it is uh, performed by Jeff, arranged by Jeff, mixed by Jeff, uh, mastered by Jeff, but most of all produced by Jeff. I would give my right arm to listen to that. <laughs> so maybe when I come over for the UK tour, I'm going to be doing a weekend, yeah, I'll uh, come sit down I'll... and have a beer and listen to it. Yeah, I'm going to meet you in Birmingham. Okay, great. The venue you're playing in Birmingham is beautiful. Yeah, I saw it online. And uh, they're very intimate. And really what I want to do is um, I I do have a kind of a format of what I'm doing. It's about an hour and a half. But what I really want to do is make each one different and make it for the people that are there. I want them to ask me what they want and get what they want out of these uh, Q&As. Yeah. Um, it's the last chance for you know i'm not going to talk after this any, anymore i mean once this is all over boom the stamp on the legacy is done i'm going to be leaving sydney in october after it's all said and done and i'm going to look up and i hope jeff buckley says i'm proud that you were my manager that's all you can ask for that's what i'm hoping there's a saying about a red cardinal i don't know if you know what type of bird it is but when a red cardinal uh, comes and lands near you, it's, a, it's supposedly a sign that someone who died is coming to back to say hello. And while I was writing the book, a lot of it was written on my back porch in Upper New Jersey. And my wife and I would have coffee in the morning, and this red cardinal would come in the backyard, and we used to laugh and say, hey, Jeff. <laughs> you know. So I just recently moved after 20 years, downsized the house, I'm now an apartment, no longer a six-bedroom house, and uh, I was outside last week, and here comes this red cardinal. No way. <laughs> and lands next to me. <laughs> and I just said, what do you want, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> but I've had to keep my humor up because... Um, I did a national radio show a couple weeks ago, and like I said, I did these uh, 10 minute, you know, every 10 minute did these radio interviews all morning, early afternoon, uh, Tuesday. And when I did uh, World Cafe, which is on the website, uh, jeffbuckleythebook.com, right at the front page at the top, it's called World Cafe, the woman had read the book, uh, asked me about when I got the call, he was missing. And I'm sitting there telling her what went on and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I see tears rushing down her face. And I'm like thinking to myself, don't do this to me. <laughs> and I slide Kleenex over to her. And if you listen to it, you'll hear like a five, six second, you know, of dead air while she composes herself. It's one of those things that even when you're preparing questions, you feel emotional. It's uh... Well, the, the radio satellite tour, for, for those that are listening to the show... Basically, they put you in a room, and they go out to all the radio stations across the country to see who wants to talk to you. And then they're given a 10-minute segment, so they use about nine minutes of it, and the producer just keeps dialing in, you know, the morning shows. Well, when you get hit with, you know, obviously the death, when you have eight minutes, they're going to go right for the death, right? So when you've done this eight, nine times, you know, I started choking up. And after the eighth or ninth time, I forget how many it was, I had uh, I knew the rest the rest of the interviews were going to be taped. These were all live. I and a couple of them were going to be twenty minutes long in national shows. I said I had to go outside and get some air. I just you know, it's just 
you know, I felt like I was getting beat up. Yeah. But you, you... I, don't, I don't blame the DJs. It's just, you know, it's tough. It's going to be really hard when I start doing these morning TVs in the next week or two. <laughs> yeah. Why is it now that you decided to finally speak about it? What was it that triggered it? Well, somebody approached me to do a movie about two years ago. And it turned out to not be real. But I started with another writer. I said, well, you know, if we're going to have a screenplay, we might, I might as well write the book at the same time, right? And so the first writer just didn't work out. He basically corrected my grammar. I then had a publisher in England that was interested in releasing it. And they got me with Barney Hopkins, who's a famous bio writer. And Barney had done five books like in five years and promotion tours, and he was really burnt. Uh, he said yes when we met in New York, and then Prince died. He has a online music paper, and then he's the one that called me up and said, "How about our mutual good friend Jim Irvin?" And that's when I called Jim. But it was really CAA. I called him up, the Rob Light. And I said, "You know, I'm thinking about writing this book." He said, "I want to read that book." And the stars were kind of lining up. For example, my agent at CAA, the head of literary used to know Jeff in L.A. because Jeff used to come by his house before he moved to New York um, because he liked the girl that was his roommate. And then you had Jim Irvin, who was with me in Dublin. You know, like everything started, the stars kind of lined up. And uh, I knew I'd probably do something one day. It's just now is the time. Do you think that writing this book and spending time with your wife, revisiting moments that you spent together is one of your first opportunities even though it's been so many years to actually grieve yeah i mean when when the literary agent i met he said i need two chapters from you and he said i know it's gonna be hard but we need one of them's got to be on the death because that's going to separate from the other books right and so um without any preconceived notion and literally just cried for three days on my back porch. Um, I realized then I hadn't grieved. And uh, my wife was coming out constantly going, are you okay? Are you okay? And there's a lot of healing in what I did. Um, So, yeah, it's helped me grieve. And what are your honest thoughts now about these music releases that are coming out that aren't finished, the best of albums, his mother's book that's supposed to be coming out? Surely it's not what he would have wanted. Well, I'm probably too close to the music, to be honest. You know, when Sketches comes out and, you know, your artist tells you that it's not finished, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask regarding that because the fans want to get as much as they can because he gave up so little before he died. Um, I do know that it was frustrating right afterwards where he'd say he approved all these photos and they'd pick another one or they want to remaster something he approved. That was really tough um, because that, to me, was pointless. And I haven't listened to really anything that's come out. Um, I just got the box set live at Sinead Vinyl. Yeah. And uh, it was sent to my house from, you know, Legacy. And the bottom line is I... I haven't listened to it. I opened it up, looked at what songs are in it. You know, most of it I heard him play live anyway. Um, and regarding the book next year, uh, Mary Sears releasing a photo book. She's awesome. She uh, was his official photographer on the road a lot, did the uh, album cover, Grace. Um, but the diaries, I, I mean, I just, I could never release my child's diary. I mean, I, I just think that's so personal. And I know for a fact he told me, because he'd let me read his diaries and um, things he'd put in them. And, you know, there was things in there against me. And, you know, just like there is in any father-son relationship or manager-artist relationship or husband-wife relationship, uh, you fight. And, you know, so um, I, I just think that that was never intended to come out. I remember when the Kurt Cobain um, diaries came out and it just, it was everything you know he never would have wanted to see that out there, his personal logs of his life. It just seems, I would never even look at it, never mind buy it. 
Yeah. It's um, sad. It's interesting because the French are waiting to see how my book does. And that was one of his biggest markets. And they said they're really into, you know, the estates book that's coming out. And yeah, I can, I can see that from the French. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I don't think the music fan, well, I mean, we'll wait to see. I might be wrong, Matt. I don't know. You watch it now, I, it'll but, sell millions. It's not like going by a train wreck, you know, or a car wreck. you got to stop and look. <laughs> you know? There's a story that I heard you talk about on one of your interviews recently about when you went to visit a psychic. There was a bracelet, wasn't it, that Jeff gave you? Is that correct? Yeah, he was losing it. He lost it a few times out on the road, and I'd find it, and he finally said, hey, it's, I'm going to get you keep it. So you went to visit this psychic who told you stuff that only you and Jeff had ever talked about. Is that right? Yeah, and I've never been to a psychic before. You know, I always thought they were the ones like, you know, if you've been in Manhattan, down in the uh, village, you see the psychic sign blinking and the one coming out, out front. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> crystal ball. Um, but my wife uh, believes in tarot cards, things like that. So, you know, I was really getting tugged on between, you know, him telling me not to let Sony have the music and, you know, everything else that was going on. So, yeah, I went to see her. She asked for a piece of jewelry. I didn't tell her anything. She said, uh, there's a Jeff or a John's uh, trying to reach you, and I just nodded my head, and she mentioned things during the course of the hour, but at the end, she said, uh, I don't know if this makes sense, but uh, he says he's in a good place. It's not your fault. Um I didn't mean for it to happen, but I didn't fight it, and it's okay to let everything go. She said, does that make sense? Makes total sense, and that's when I went back and took the music up to Sony. I'm scared to ever go and visit one of them, because I think they would tell me stuff that's just too close to the bone, and I'd freak out. I'd be like, how do you know this shit? How do you know? You know, it wasn't the internet day, so she couldn't look up Dave Laurie and see what I've done, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, today, you could probably get away with looking people up online, you know? So looking back at your time with Jeff, you've obviously gone through very a life of ups and downs and lots of great memories, but what's your fondest memory that you hold on to with Jeff? Was there a time, even if it's not mentioned in the book, but a time that you'll always think back to that you cherish and you, you're glad that you had with him? Uh, it had to be the Olympia in Paris. Um, when we were out on the first solo tour, when I mentioned the gun and the holster and the attitude, and I told him I can't teach you about attitude, you have to do it yourself. And all great artists have that, they command the stage, blah, blah, blah. Well, about two years later, he's doing the Olympia. He's surfing the crowd, they're tearing his shirt. He, they push him back up on the stage. He ends the set. He comes running backstage and runs up the circle staircase and then comes back down. He says, hey, Attitude? I said, now you got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And that was for a couple of reasons. Because one, he ended the stage. But more importantly to me, of all the things you talk to an artist about, he actually not only listened, but he trusted and he remembered. And that must be rare. Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you're, if you're planning to be a manager for anybody out there listening, it's not a job for the, the meek. Um, it's a what have you done lately for me. And when I say lately, I mean the last hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, um, my friend so-and-so just got this interview or just got this TV show or his song's on radio. Why is mine not on radio? And I say it in the book when the phone rang at 5.58 a.m. in the morning, I said, oh, damn, somebody's in jail or in the hospital. It's never good when you get a call as a manager at that time in the morning or it's the artist ready to scream at you. So um, do I miss management? Parts of it I do. I miss the personal connection, but I don't miss, and I miss the travel. I don't miss the, you know, debauchery that went along with it in a lot of cases with the groups that I worked with. And also, after you, after you bring the Allman Brothers back, who are an incredible live band after 10 years, of, and you break a, an artist like Jeff Buckley, I mean, 
I can never, every artist I worked with after that, it just wasn't the same. It's like, you know, it's, you've done, where are you going to go? <laughs> you know? So you mentioned just towards the end that after this tour that you do and you, you, you know, you, you give the fans the chance to come and meet with you and do a Q&A and talk about the book and people can read your thoughts, you are going to decide to close the book forever and you're not going to talk about it again. Is that something you decided when writing the book or has it been because you've done so much press now or was there a deadline for you to say that's it well i don't think i can do anything but harm it after that uh do you know what i mean it's uh people can go read the book there'll be enough online interviews you know uh now it's different because you know things are moving slower so like you'll put this out in the uk that people in the uk will hear it the ones I'm doing here, it's not like you going to research for the interview. So, but by the time I get done over the next five months, there's going to be pretty much nothing more that can be said. My final question for you today is if Jeff was still with us now, where do you see his life? What did you see him doing? Did you think that he would finally settle down with Joan? Do you think that Rebecca... Would it, you would never have got over Rebecca? Do you think he would have been a father? Do you think he would have carried on with music? Or how did you see it going for him? Well, I'm not going to talk about who he saw and who he didn't see because I really didn't get into those relationships. I know I was around for Joan and he was around Joan. He was very happy and she was very good for him. I could see him having kids. I could see him coming to grips with uh, his fame. Um, I also, even just off Grace, he was off tour support. He was making money on the road with full production crew. So he had a career for the rest of his life live. Um, and I believe he would have been doing so many different varieties of music. Um, he told me he wanted to do a Pakistani record, the MTV Unplugged, like I said, with horns and strings and, you know, scary music, he called it, and heavy metal he loved. I mean, he, I think he would have released everything. I mean, he did the Meltdown Festival with Elvis Costello, full orchestra, singing songs like Dido's Lament. Um, there's nothing Jeff couldn't have done. And what's sad is that would have been a great thing to have been riding along with. I really thank you for your time today. And um, like I said, it I, it feels like the plaster being ripped off, but also the closure's there and you, you heal. And reading your book was fantastic and I'm really excited when it's officially out for everyone to get involved and hopefully in the UK here they'll come and see you on your couple of dates and hear these stories again because it can't have been easy to decide to actually release this but I'm so glad you did. Well thank you and like I said the fans can go to Jeff Buckley the book and it's uh, for sale now on pre-order on Amazon UK and they can click right on the website and there's all kinds of videos with me talking and press and stuff like that and there's also the tour dates on there where they can buy tickets for the London, Birmingham, Manchester shows Amazing, thank you I'll see you in September So there's my interview with Dave and myself and as I'd warned you at the start of the episode it was emotional I remember sitting back only a couple of days ago to edit this episode and I was there with kind of tears running down my face. It's not an easy episode to edit. The subject is very raw and it's someone that means a lot to me. So to know that Dave, who was so close to Jeff, who was literally part of his family, to come on here and talk after all these years, I just, I, I'm just so, so grateful and kind of lost for words. So thank you, Dave. This book that's out now, From Hallelujah to the Last Goodbye, is the best Jeff Buckley book I've read. I am obsessed with Jeff and his life, and I've read all the books. But a lot of them are these kind of unofficial and people that kind of knew him. But when I was lucky enough to read the advanced copy of this book, I couldn't pull it down. Dave has done the best job possible of a dedicated book to his life, to celebrate the life of Jeff and share stuff with you that only he has to tell. And I think, Dave, this book is phenomenal and I wish it all the success because it couldn't have been easy to write this book and it's it's fantastic. So if you haven't got it and you're now listening to this interview, get on Amazon or get on his site 
As you heard on the interview, he's coming to the UK, so any UK listeners get tickets for his Q&A. Dave is one of the nicest guys I've met. He will spend time answering those questions you've got on Jeff Buckley and his life. But remember, after that, that's it. Dave's not going to talk again, so this is your kind of only chance to meet with him and discuss this subject. As always, everyone, I'm so, so grateful for you listening to this podcast. The rise on my own Patreon has been great. Since the last episode, more and more people are jumping on and pledging to me, and I'm so, so grateful. It allows me to do a lot more interviews, go out there, talk to more people, which results in more episodes for all of you. I'm going to be able to invest in some more equipment, so when you heard the Jamie interview recently and it sounded a lot clearer, it's because I'm using microphones and going out to the actual homes or venues to conduct interviews, and that's going to carry on in the near future because of your loyalty and your Patreon money, so thank you very much. If you haven't joined up, it's simple. Just go onto Patreon, look for Mark and me, and there's a number of rewards on there. There's T-shirts, there's Funkos, there's many prizes, and I'll keep adding more and more as I can to reward you for helping me, because I'm so, so grateful. As always, I'm not going to reveal my next guest. It is a music-related guest, so it shouldn't be too long to wait. And I've had some really good fun over the last couple of weeks interviewing some great, great people. And some fantastic interviews are in the diary, so I kind of want to whet your appetite with that. Just before I go, I know I keep banging the drum, but Dave, I'm so, so grateful for you joining me on the Mark and Me podcast. It was an emotional interview. It left me feeling very cold at times, but also I was happy and I was smiling because it's a celebration of Jeff and his life. And for someone that means so much to us, I think we did it justice. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dave. Please keep coming on markandme.com. There's the Twitter, there's the Instagram, there's the Facebook page on there. I read everything that you send me, and I'm so, so grateful. I hope you've enjoyed the interview. As you can tell, it's not the easiest one. My tone's probably not as <laughs> upbeat as usual, but I've had a great time, and thank you all. This is It's over Just do this and then I'll go You gave me more to live for More than you'll ever know well, This is our last Just because